you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. A lot of those songs were new for me as well, but the first one we sang, The Lion and the Lamb. I, I love the passage of Scripture in Revelation. In chapter 5, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creature. And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. The lion and the lamb. Amen. Whew, that's good. Man, I, I tell you what, all the songs were my sermon. So if you were paying attention, you can go. But um, I tell you what, it, that, that was, those were really great words and those songs and great songs. And, uh, and, and I hope you enjoy learning New songs, new music. Next Sunday is going to be exciting. Uh, it's going to be uh, uh, a bunch of young people in here. So if you don't like young people, you can sit in the overflow room. Um, or what young people do, maybe it would be a better way to put that. Uh, but, but, uh, but we do expect a big crowd. So if you're a member, uh, if you're like me, hospitality means you make your guests feel more welcome than you feel yourself. And so we need to kind of make room for uh, a guest and and uh, other young folks that might be here. And uh, so we will have overflow room uh, set up there in the, uh, in the gym on the other side. And uh, we can go in there as well if we need to. And I hope we need to. Amen? Wow, that was weak. Some of y'all are like, no, nah, I don't want them in my seat. You know? No, that's going to be exciting. Amen? Hey, I love to give up my place. Somebody might hear about the Lord and get saved. I don't know about you, but I know where I'm going. I don't... I don't I don't have to come listen to me. I'm going to move this because every time I look up, I see it. All right, sorry. No, no, no worries. It, it's right there. It's safe. Okay, good. I, I, I run into things sometimes, and uh, it, it's, really, it's really bad. Anyway, this morning, I, I'm talking about preparing for the promise. We're talking about preparing for battle. I want you to prepare for the promise. God's made a promise that he's kept, but he's going to keep because he keeps keeping it. And, uh, and, and I want you to see that today. We're, we're in Ephesians 1. And brother, if you don't mind, go ahead and put that sentence up there. Because I want you to understand something. Broken promises belong to men, not to God. God will never break his promise. I can't help but break promises for one simple reason. When I make a promise, I don't have all knowledge, so I don't know the future. I don't have, uh, so that's omniscience. I don't have omnipotence, so I can manipulate the future. See, God can make it happen according to his will. That was a great spot to go, amen, amen. God's in control. He's got it. And I, I know some people, bad things happen. Why would God allow this? Well, because it's for his glory and you're good. See, God doesn't care if you're happy. He cares if you're holy. Now, he wants to give you joy, but happiness is a result of my circumstances. Joy is a result of the indwelling God. That the Holy Spirit is taking up residence to me. And so I can have joy in the midst of bad circumstances. And if you don't understand that, take a mission trip, okay? That's all I can say. Go to South America or Haiti or Africa or Asia, and you will see exactly what I'm talking about. Christians who have nothing and are a lot happier than us because we don't like where the thermostat's set. 
You know, it just that, and like I said, that kind of drives me crazy sometimes. But, but, but we as men, we break promises. We, we, don't, we don't want to, we don't mean to. But I have, as a dad, man, that's just, if you're a dad, I know you feel the same way, especially if your kids are grown. Uh, you know, all my children are out of the house, and thank God. Um, amen. amen. When, when my oldest went to college, my wife was crying. And I said, why are you crying? She said, there's still two at home. No. <laughs> She did not say that. I said that, but no, I'm kidding. We love our kids. We loved when they're home. I love that they're gone. I love when they come back. Uh, we do love them. But, uh, but, you know, as a dad, you just wonder, man, did I do it right? Did I do everything I could do? And, and sometimes that is a concern. It's like, man, I could have done that better, that better. And we kind of beat ourselves up. And, and in fact, I want to tell you a, a quick story. I, I said this in the question and answer time, I think, before y'all um, uh, crazily invited me to be your pastor and uh but but i have a, a a set of priorities in my head because if you don't prioritize your life then things will mess up and my priorities are first of all in a relationship with god now it'll be your priority because if that isn't right nothing's right vance Adler says dad said nothing's right till it's till uh, nothing uh is is right until you made it right nothing's made right until it's made right with god so that's the first priority. So that ought to be the number one goal of your life is to maintain that relationship with God. Now, I know when you have an order of one, two, three, you get messed up, but you ought to think this way. Secondly is your family. And as a pastor, I have to think that way because Timothy tells me if my family's messed up, I've disqualified myself being a pastor. That's just, that's just a fact. And that's, that's uh, you know, while I have control, you know, there comes a point in everybody's life where they and they alone will answer to God for choices they make. So we taught our kids to obey God and follow God and seek after God. Now it's up to them to obey that, and so far, so good. So I'm thankful, because that's their decision at this point. So I'm not trying to put anybody in guilt, but as much as lies within us, well, I do that. So my second priority was my family always was. Now they're grown and gone, so that's good. Third is whatever's left over, that's what I give to the job. Because those first two things had to be right before I could do this. You understand what I'm saying? I messed that up one time (laughs) because part of making your family so important is to know what's happening. And I had a pastor call me and said, would you come do a revival for us? Sure. When is it? Told me. I wrote it down. Said, no problem. So uh, I made a promise. And when we were coming down to finally getting around to that, my wife said, oh, here's the dates of our vacation, by the way. I don't even have to explain that, do I? (laughs) My children were kind of small back then. Uh, I think uh, our youngest was around five or so, less than five, and uh, made my oldest one ten or nine or ten. And uh, they went to Topsail Island off the coast of North Carolina, and my kids to this day will tell you the second favorite vacation they ever took. The first favorite was when we traveled across country and they got to go to a bunch of states. But that was because Dad wasn't there, but that's not why it was the best. It was just... Topsail was a great place to go. So they're walking down the beach, and they found seashells and things. And it was just, I don't know, secluded or what. I wasn't there, so I don't know. But they started picking up shark's teeth on the shore. Is that pretty close? Yeah, I got to ask her because I wasn't there. And they took them to a local place that will turn them into a little necklace for you. So since Dad's not here, they found one that looked different from the rest. And they brought me back. A necklace. Turned out that shark's tooth was a kind of rare one to find, and so it was real important. So let's give that one to Dad. And since my son, who's now 22, and he picked it up when he was five, 
I remind myself of my broken promise so that I won't make that mistake again. Before I answer you, let me check with my calendar keeper. What is going on? And if it's family, that's, you know, now, I know that sounds harsh. Let me just say before y'all all get mad at me that I have a very understanding family, and when there is a conflict, I, I, you know, they get it, and sometimes that has to work out. But that, that meant a lot because I missed a, a week. I'll never get that back. You see, there are a lot of men that could be your pastor. I'm the only guy who can be their daddy. Don't forget that priority in your life. You, you know, a lot of people can do what you do. If you ever think you're so indispensable, take a visit to the graveyard and see all the indispensable people who are located there. Somebody will pick it up and go on, but only you can be a husband to your wife. Speaking to the men, women, only you can be a wife to your husband, and only you two can be parents to your children. So keep that straight. So, but you know, God never breaks a promise. See, I think a lot of you have identified what I'm saying. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass anybody else. I'll embarrass myself, but... God never breaks a promise because he's perfect in all his ways. He knows what's going to happen. He can make happen whatever he wants to make happen. He knows our best. And if he knows our best and he has the power to accomplish our best, and he has love for us, he desires our best, what do we lack? Nothing. Yeah, that's not amen. That's nothing. We lack. Say it with me. We lack nothing. That's right. You have everything. And God has promised that. And we see this in Ephesians 1. So if you stand with me, uh, less verses, maybe that may mean a shorter sermon. Who knows? I doubt it. But um, Just verses 11 to 14. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I know that that human speech is inadequate to fully explain who you are. Lord, our minds are not big enough to understand and comprehend who you are. But Lord, you've given us enough to know and an ability to understand enough for all matters of life and faith and practice. And so, Lord, we pray that this day you would open our minds to behold wonderful things out of your word. That, Lord, you would uh, inflame and, and strengthen our will that we might reach out and grab hold of the promises of God that you've given to us. And, Lord, this day... We pray that all the praise and the glory might go unto you. That, uh, Lord, we would be faithful to give you honor and glory and praise and worship. And, Father, right now we bind the strong man in the authority of Christ. And, Lord, we just ask that you would rebuke the devourer for us. Lord, uh, we know that, uh, that uh, we are not immune from demonic presence even inside this building, gathered as believers in Christ. And so I just ask now that you thwart them, that you bind them so that your people might be free to listen, to hear, to obey. God, that you would free this day the captive, that you would set free the one who is lost and bound in chains, and that this day, Lord, we might give you glory for your mighty works and acts among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Young, sit down if you want to or if you can. I want you to see, as I said, broken promises belong to men, not to God. God never breaks a promise, and he made us a promise before he created the world. 
I love the story of creation, and I won't get into that. Because if I do, I won't get out of it. But, but God did an amazing thing. Out of nothing, he created all things. See, if you, if you have uh, believed the false theory of evolution, you believe that matter is eternal. So therefore, go outside, get you a stick and a rock, set it up, and bow and worship it. Because that's eternal for you. But however, if you believe in God of the Bible, he put one foot on nothing and another foot on the nowhere, and he created all that we see out of nothingness. That's the God we serve. Ex nihilo, it says in Latin, means out of nothing. One time I asked a, a professor who, who was a lot smarter than me, and I thought I was being smart-alecky. Uh, well, I was being smart-alecky. I thought it was clever. I said, are we going to ex- observe five minutes of prayer and fasting for this exam we're about to take? And he told me, God only created ex nihilo one time. In other words, there was nothing up in my brain, and it wasn't going to help to pray at that point. I should have studied. But that's the God we serve, that out of nothing, he's made everything that is visible. You don't believe me? Read Colossians. You don't believe that because you've bought into a lie, which has no scientific evidence to support it. We can talk after church. But God has made promises before he made the foundation of the world that he is keeping even today. And they're promises to the church, as we see in Ephesians. He's speaking to the church, but they also apply to us individually. The first thing I want you to see is that the promise was made and delivered. Notice how this, this opens in verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance. Now, you get that. You get it on the surface. What you understand is is what it's saying, but it, it, it is rich. It is deep. I don't want anybody to ever think that if you can't read Greek and Hebrew, you can't understand the Bible. You can understand what God has for you out of an English Bible. Trust me. But I, I do want you to, to catch hold of this. this. This promise, I said, is unearned. You can go into the next slide. We're on point one there. The promise is unearned. Notice you've obtained that promise. That word, uh, that word obtained the promise, that phrase comes from only one word. That is one word in that Greek language in which the Bible was written. It's a compound word. And I looked up the definition so I could, so I could explain it. It means to allot or to assign a privilege. It means to obtain an inheritance. And in fact, it was such a strong word. It meant that it was a future so guaranteed and so certain it could not fail to happen. That's how they understood it. Here's how you'd say it in English. You can take that to the bank. See, we might not have seen it yet, but we know it's going to happen. There's no doubt about it. Now, we say that braggingly sometimes, and our bragging is vain because what we thought was going to happen didn't happen. But when God makes a promise, he knows what the future is. God never says, oops. God never says, how'd that happen? He knows it's going to happen. He's got it worked out, and he made a promise that is so certain, it says we have obtained it, and it is the fulfillment of a promise. That entire phrase is one word. Let me, let me ex- illustrate it another way. I have a shotgun that my grandfather bought in, I forgot what year. I'm thinking it's around 1927. It's the story in my head, 24, somewhere there. Because whatever year it was, that's how much he paid for it. Now, I showed it to Brother Milton. Mil- Brother Milton said it was a really nice gun. I didn't know how nice it was. I'm, I, but my dad always had it. My dad was one of seven brothers. My dad had four sisters, and each sister had seven brothers. And... Um, just making sure you're awake. So all of his brothers wanted that shotgun. And the, my uncles used to say, I can't believe you got dad's shotgun. And 
It's like, yeah, well, back up, because I know how to use it, too. But Because um, they all wanted it. it. It's a really, I'm not even going to tell you what it is, because somebody come trying to get it from me. Well, my son, when he was growing up, I, I learned to shoot with that thing, and he learned to shoot with that thing. In fact, we went out shooting skeet with just guys in a farmyard, you know, about five men, and my son was about 10, 11, 12, and I'll go ahead and tell you, it's a little double-barrel 20-gauge, and we came down to one clay left. So I said, all right, men, all of you line up, and the one who breaks this clay is the winner of the day. And so five men lined up, my son on the end. I threw that thing, and I heard as if one gun, boom, five shotguns go off at once. Nobody touched it. And then all of a sudden, we all heard, pop, that 20 gauge go off, and it obliterated. <laughs> and all those men said, that 10-year-old outshot us. I said, yeah, he sure did. That's my son. No, anyway. <laughs> so guess what gun my son really wants to have? Guess who has it? Guess who's getting it? Here's what I told him. You can get it when you have your own house in a safe. Because you're not going to put it in a dorm room with a bunch of crazy college boys that don't have any sense. Right? But he's already obtained it. It's really his. We've already obtained the inheritance. Just hadn't seen it all yet, but it's already ours. It's so certain it's already happened, even though... Oh, wait, does that sound like Hebrews, I don't know what, around 11, verse 1? Faith is the... Evident substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We already know it's coming. We go, it's already ours. We've already got it. You see, this promise is not only uh, a, an amazing thing that it's unearned, it is also glorious. There in verse 11, not only have we obtained this inheritance, we've pre- been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we are the first hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. Let me tell you why I read verse, all verse, those verses. Because in, in the language in which the Bible is written, the order of all this is reversed in the way we read it. it, it, it in many languages, in English we say the subject and then the verb. In many languages, the verb comes for the subject. And in the Greek language, it doesn't matter because the ending on the word is how it determines its place in the grammar. So the, the order of the words almost almost always doesn't mean a lot. And here, for emphasis, if you want to emphasize something, you put it at the beginning. Like, this is really important, so get this word. And so if we read it sort of in that order, it would say that we who are the first hope in Christ will be to the praise of his glory because according to the counsel of his will, we were the first to hope in him because the purpose of him was to predestine us. It kind of goes in reverse order. And so I want you to understand that because I'm going to explain the order we have it. But the promise is glorious because we've been predestined. It means to limit in advance from the beginning, God was at work to make salvation happen. Before he created the world, he knew what he was going to do. Now that ought to get you more excited about the love of God than anything else I know. Because once I had children, I loved them. I didn't love my kids before I had them. I did, sort of, but I didn't because I didn't know their names. I didn't know what they were like. I didn't know who they were. And I don't love them for that. I love them because they're my children. But do you get my point? You can love in general. You can say, but then once I knew them. But who knew us before the foundation of the world? God. He already loved us. And here's, here's my point in case you missed it. Adam's sin did not catch God by surprise. 
I've kind of said that already, but I want you to really nail this down for yourself. In other words, before God ever, out of nothing, created the universe, knew that he would put on an earth suit, move in with us, live a sinless life, suffer at the hands of men, die on a cross, and be buried, and rise again. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not voluntarily sign up for that duty. But God did. He didn't have to create us knowing what we would do, but he created us anyway. And he loved us enough to come to the cross anyway and die for us. No wonder a couple weeks ago we sang that song, The Love of God, How Rich, How Pure, How Vast. Oh my goodness. It's beyond our comprehension. God was at work before the foundation of the world to make salvation happen. Notice that in those verses. It says he predestined us according to his purpose to work all things according to the counsel of his will. That comes from a word from which we get words like energy and energize. That's a similar sounding word in the Greek language. In other words, God was moving. God was at work. He wasn't just sitting idly back going, hey, let's spin this up and see what happens when I let go. He didn't let go. He created it. It started working according to his will, perfectly like he planned. And then he came and died for us, according to his plan. He continually was at work with this. That's why it says in Philippians, that he that began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Sometimes Christians run around all worried about, am I really saved? Can God really hold on to me? Can I sin and get out of the grace of God? To which the Bible emphatically says no. Because if you could be saved and then lost, there's nothing else to save you. If you believe you can be saved and lost, let me just tell you, you're hopelessly lost then. Because the Bible says Christ died once for our sin. And if his death on the cross before I had committed any sin, and in the mind of God I would committed all my sin, it's not enough to forgive me for all my sin, past, present, and future. Then my sin getting out of, somehow I'm more strong than God, I can get out of his hand. Give me a break. He says he holds me in his hand and God don't let go. Right? Even when I would want to let go. You ever had your kid's hand and you're walking across the street and they start shaking their arm because they want to get free and run because they don't understand that cars can kid them and hurt them? And you squeeze down tighter until they quit moving? And then you got to look, oh, did I squeeze too hard? No, okay. You know what I'm talking about? You start fighting God, God just squeeze a little tighter and hold on. He's not going to let you go. Because he began the work before the foundation of the world, and he's still got it going on. He is working even now to fulfill his purpose in your life. His perspective on our inheritance in Christ is shown that he thought it up, that he has the power to make it happen, that it is to the praise of his glory. Now, see, God can be selfish and it not be sin, just using human words. You following me? God is not selfish. He's selfless. He denied himself. God so loved the world that he gave himself in order that we could be saved. But God is a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with another. You understand that? And so God, to to have... The praise of his glory has saved you that you can praise him for your salvation. That he would gain glory from that. And God's, the, the promise is given to fulfill God's purpose. And we see that there in verse 12. We fulfill his purpose 
to the praise of his glory. He saved you so that you can give him honor and glory. God is at work to restore the image that was lost when Adam sinned. Second Corinthians, y'all don't talk much and I really need your help. Second Corinthians uh, 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a... You know that word is the same one? Same idea as the one in, it's not the same word, but same idea as the one in Genesis. He has recreated you. He's made you brand new. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. What's past? All things. What's new? All things. All things have passed away, and behold, all things are new. He's recreating the image of Christ in us so that he can get glory. For the praise of his glory... God always in Scripture is presenting salvation from His perspective for His glory. I, I used a big word in there that we, we talk about sometimes and we don't understand because we use that word predestination. Let me just tell you, nobody's smart enough to understand that. Okay? It's like, uh, well, there's another doctrine. Well, there's a lot of doctrines we don't fully comprehend, but we say, but it's true, but we don't fully comprehend it. One is who God is. We, we really don't quite get that i was talking about creation earlier i would ask you what creates light and you say the sun but if you read it carefully there was light before there was the sun and in psalm 36 it says in your light we see light it takes the light of god before we can see what god is talking about you following me you with me and so i I read this quote uh uh, somebody quoting another guy so i don't know who first said it but i I said it in sunday school because pete today was talking about this subject But it's as if the purpose of God in salvation is like a sign in the sky. And when we look up from here, we see the words, whosoever will may come. Let me just tell you, if you're struggling with predestination, like, well, I just don't understand. I don't get it. Listen, you want to be saved? Be saved today because that isn't your thought. That's God's thought in you. Because we're sinners, we're different from God, we, we are the enemy of God, we're running from Him, we're pushing Him away. And if you realize you need a Savior, that's God the Holy Spirit working in your heart telling you, you better come to me now. God loves you enough to reach out and cause a desire for Him in your life because in our sinful state, we don't desire that. And when we look up from the ground, we see whoever, whosoever will may come. And then one day when we go to heaven, we're going to look at that sign from the back. And on the back it's going to say, predestined from before the foundation of the world. And how those two things work together, I don't know and neither do you. And we can argue about it till the cows come home. Or we could take the gospel to every creature, every person in the world. And let God the Holy Spirit work it out from there. Amen. Because that's the orders. Amen. The order of God for the believer is to preach the gospel to every creature. He didn't tell us to figure out how he, how he does it. He just told us from the sovereign God. We say, you are sovereign Lord. You're to be obeyed. But I got to have a special feeling to tell my neighbor about Jesus? No, we got a command. You don't need a conviction. You got a command from the commander in chief. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he'll figure it out from there. Our job, if we'll do our job, he'll do his job. Amen? Listen, I study church growth on a doctrinal level. I've read a lot of books about it. And let me, let me sum up a, a, a lot of money and a lot of education for you. Tell your neighbor about Jesus. I promise you, some of them are going to believe in him and be saved. 
And when they are, they come into the family of God, meeting locally here in this building called Calvary Baptist Church, and the church will grow. If you want to understand church growth, there it is. If God's people will just obey his word, things will happen. And they're good things. So we praise him. We give him glory. And I want you to see, though, that this promise that he made from before the foundation of the world is being fulfilled now. Look with me there in verse 13 going into verse 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Notice that. God did something, but you've got to do something. The promise is fulfilled now. The promise is comprehended. When you heard, notice that in verse 13, you heard it. Now, we understand that word hearing doesn't necessarily mean uh, just a hearing a noise. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth. The apostle Paul gave his testimony three times in the book of Acts. We get the story and then twice when he repeated it. And, he re- and, and in our English Bibles, one time he says, those with me did not hear the voice. And then the second time he says it, he says, and those with me heard the voice. Say, ah, the Bible's got a contradiction. No, we're just talking in English instead of the way he wrote it. Here's how he wrote it. Those with me did not hear the voice with understanding. And the second time he said, those with me heard the voice, but they didn't understand it. It's just two different ways to say the same thing. And so I can hear a noise, but I might not necessarily understand it. Listen, after 29 years of being married to my wife, she says things, and I just go, all I hear is Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. And I've noticed that the same phenomenon's happening to her. I didn't hear you. I didn't understand what you said. I, it got so bad, I went to a hearing guy, and I said, I need to check my hearing. He said, your hearing's fine. I went, oh, I got another problem then. I, I thought it was my ears, but it's not. And many people come to church and they hear the word of God. And all they hear is wah, 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 wah. Because you're not in tune with God. You don't want to hear what he has to say. You would rather ignore him. But you, when you heard, when it became clear to you. That's why I pray before the sermon. Open the eyes of our understanding, our hearts, our minds of understanding. That we can behold wonderful things in your word. Because without his help, we don't even get it. We don't even understand it. You can give a lost man a Bible unless the Spirit of God quickens him and makes him understand it. He won't understand it. When you read the Bible as history or literature, you go, oh, that's nice, but you don't get it. But in his light, we see light. Once the Spirit of God dwells in you, you begin to see what God intends for us. And you, when you heard it, here's the... The promise is defined, the gospel of your salvation. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. The good news of your salvation. What is the good news of your salvation? You don't have to do it. You see, people say there are many roads to heaven, there are many religions, they're all teaching the same thing. All that's hogwash. There are two religions, Christianity and everything else. And that's it. And every other religion is working their way to heaven. If you say this many prayers, if you knock on this many doors, if you do a two-year on a bicycle mission trip, Baptists get into it. If you tithe plus, we'll tell God you're okay. Right? 
come to church enough, if you read your Bible enough, if you pray enough, if you act good enough. And so people are constantly trying to improve themselves. We call it turning over a new leaf, but here's the problem. When you turn a rotten leaf over, it's rotten on the other side too. Now I know leaf it means a page in the book, but you wrote on one page, so it's already messed up. If you turn over a new leaf, it's messed up on the other side anyway. We can't save ourselves. So Christianity is a little different. He goes, yeah, I get it. You can't. So let me do it for you. Our job is what? To surrender to his lordship. We just go, I get it. I'm a sinner. You're God. I'm not. You died for me. Please. Whatever you want, you got it. You can have all of me. You can have everything I ever have been, everything I ever will be, everything I possess, my family. You have all decision-making power in my life. I have unconditional surrender to you. I mean, we are the Japanese signing on the deck of the Missouri after the end of World War II. Unconditional surrender. That's the good news. And that conquering king, when he makes you his subject, instead of making you pay for your sin, he paid for himself. And he adopts you as a son, and he loves you. And he gives you the privilege, and you obtain an inheritance better than a double-barrel 20-gauge. You've already got it. You heard it. You obeyed it. Look what it says. That we, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, we believed in him. We acted on it. I was talking earlier about God's predestination. Here's the deal. When God speaks to you, you've got a responsibility to obey. Period. It's not automatic. You just don't walk through life and one day God goes, boom. And you go, whoa, that was cool. What was that? He'll make sure you get it. He'll make sure you understand it. But you have a responsibility to respond in love to him. That might be a good thing to keep in mind when we get to Ephesians 5 about husbands and wives and submission and all that. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So the husbands, if you love your wife like Christ loved the church, all this other stuff, they're going to love to follow your leadership. Yeah, us men don't want to say amen because we know what scoundrels we are. I am a scoundrel. I'm the head scoundrel. The promises act on. We believed in him. Faith is man's response to God's elective purpose. God's choice of men is election. Men's choice of God is faith. In election, God gives us promises, and by faith, men receive them. John MacArthur said that. Just want to give him credit before somebody tells me I stole. Everything I say and I stole. I mean, most of it from what God said, but I'm stealing from other people too. Listen. We believe in him, but then notice the benefit, and it leads into the last point as well. The promised benefit is that we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. My son's going to get that shotgun. What's the only guarantee he has that I told him so? God said, when you believe in the promise that I've given, you're going to get heaven. And he said, oh, by the way, even though I'm God and it's impossible for me to lie and I never break a promise, by the way, while we're defining promise, you know the difference between a covenant and a contract? In case you don't, let me explain it. A contract always has an escape clause. If either party doesn't fulfill their part of the contract, the contract's null and void. 
So if you rent a house, you get that. You signed off to do certain things. And if you break that, they can just throw you out because you broke the contract. However, if they don't fulfill their part for what you're paying them for, if they do that, they break the contract and you've got certain rights that you, that you can enact. God did not make a contract with us. He made a covenant. A covenant is this. I don't care what you do. This is what I'm going to do regardless. Marriage is a covenant, by the way. My wife asked me one time, what if I went crazy and I left you? What would you do? I said, I'd go with you. Because <laughs> I made a contract. I didn't make a contract. I made a covenant that I would love you until one of us died. She said, well, you mess with me. That could happen faster than you think. No, she didn't say that. She would never say that. Ruth Graham said that. They asked her one day, she believed in divorce. She said, no, I thought of murder many times, but never divorced. <laughs> Our marriages are to be covenants. God's, that's why we call it, the word testament is another word for covenant. The old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant pointed us to the new covenant because no man could be saved by keeping the law. So the law was given to show us that we needed something else and the new covenant came. And Jesus said at the Last Supper, here is the covenant in my blood. Drink it. The seal of it is that he shed his blood for us on a cross. And he gave us Holy Spirit to seal us in that salvation. And so that promise is fulfilled not only in the now but in the future. Look at verse 14. He gave us... He sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So God, who cannot lie and cannot break his covenantal promise, said, I don't have to give you anything because I know I'm going to do it. And you know that I know that you know that I know I'm going to do it. But I'm going to give you a guarantee anyway. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit live in you. Notice in this text it calls him the promised Holy Spirit. But if you go back to Acts 2, Peter's Sermon on the Mount, not Sermon on the Mount, Peter's Sermon at Pentecost, I think it's verse 30, it might be verse 33, but 30, 31, 32, 33. Peter says, this that you've seen is the promise of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus, once he finished what he was doing, see, in, in, in God's counsel, God the Father made a plan, and Jesus subjected himself to the will of the Father and put on flesh and died for us. And... Again, not that I can explain it, but I confess it as truth. If Jesus would do what he said he would do, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit would give Jesus control of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, I'm going to pour out the Spirit on you. After I've done my job, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. And he was promised to us. Read the book of John, you'll see it. Right? You with me? And so, that's why I said we don't need another Pentecost. We already had one. We need to live in the power of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when you got saved, according to Romans 8, Holy Spirit came to live in you. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're, you're not a bad Christian, you're lost. Because the Holy Spirit comes when you get saved. You've already received the Holy Spirit. He's the down payment. He's the guarantee. But there's a waiting period. Look in verse 14. Until we acquire possession of it. What's it? The promise of our full glorification. You see, I was saved. I am being saved. But I'm going to be saved. There's going to come a day where either I die or Jesus comes back for all of us. 
And if he comes back for all of us, you know what the Bible says, the dead in Christ rise first. That's how we know the Presbyterians are going first. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I shouldn't. I usually say Baptist, and for whatever reason, I change that, but I'm sorry. If you're a Presbyterian, I love you. Trust me, I love you. I was just kidding. The dead in Christ rise first, and then we who are alive and remain are changed in the twinkling of an eye. Why do we have to be changed? Because we can't go to heaven in these bodies. They can't handle it. And he glorifies us in that instant. If we die now, but Jesus not come back for all of us, this body is buried or burned or whatever. If you bury it, it's going to turn to dust anyway. It oxidizes, and fire just speeds that up. But our spirit goes to be with him, and one day he will recreate that body. He'll make it new, better, and we reoccupy it. And so when we get to heaven, we see, wow, this is what you promised me, but I didn't see it while I was living on earth because I have to wait for it. But here's the guarantee. The Holy Spirit lives with you. He is heaven on earth. He is the taste of heaven now. He is the way we know that when we die, we will go to heaven. God has given us the benefit of salvation. He's a promise. So we wait in this, in this life, but the promise has that fulfillment. We acquire possession of it in heaven. That's where we're going to get it. And it says it ends up to the praise of his glory. You see, salvation is all about God. It's not about you. Did God take a sinner that your own mama gave up on you and turn you into a saint? Only God can do that. Some of y'all have that testimony. Some of y'all don't have that testimony. You're like me. You grew up in church. I've been saved since I was eight. I was going to church nine months before I was born. And you know what that makes me? A sinner. Until I come to know Christ and he makes me a saint. So it doesn't matter where you are. It matters where you're going. And where you're going, it's not about you. It's God goes, watch this. I'm going to take this guy. Nobody thought. I'm going to take a guy who is, he's, he's smart, but he's smart because I gave him his brain. But man, he hates Christians. He's murdering them. He's getting permission to murder more of them. Watch this. Wham! <laughs> Knocks him down. Kind of hard for you to keep rebelling, isn't it, Saul? Who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to keep kicking against the pricks. You go to Jerusalem, I'm going to send somebody there to talk to you. And I shows up and says, Saul, the Lord told me to come tell you what he's up to. God took a guy that wanted to kill all of us and turn him into the greatest evangelist ever. Who was it you gave up on this week? Which child of yours, which cousin, which parent, which grandparent, which friend, which co-worker did you say, you know what, they're never going to come to know Christ. I'm just going to give up on them. Wait a minute. You don't have that authority. God didn't let you pick who gets saved and who doesn't. Your job is to pray and to witness. All of us believe God picks when we pray, don't we? Dear Lord, save so-and-so. We never say, Lord, let me convince them. We always ask God to save them because we know only he can, right? Don't give up on praying. Please don't give up on praying. Because God can act and he wants to act. And so when we pray, then we need to act as well. We need to tell the gospel. 
But remember, it's to the praise of his glory that he can have preeminence. And the reason you're saved is you can say, look what God can do with somebody who didn't deserve it, doesn't have a lot, but God gave me every good thing that I have. God has enabled me to do everything positively for him that has ever happened through my life. That's got to be God because I can't handle it. I can't do it. Amen? Well, what can you do this week? I got a few things for you to think about. First of all, are you living in that promise? You need to take steps now. Some of you are sitting here and you know that if you died right this minute, you'd bust hell wide open because you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You might be religious. You might give nodding head knowledge to God. Well, yeah, I know God exists and all that stuff. But that you think that's good enough. It is not. The only thing good enough is just to fall on your face before God and say, I'm a sinner and I need you to take away my sin and to make me one of yours. Take away my sin, cleanse me, and make me your child. Maybe you've already done that, but you're not living in the power of that promise that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Then I take steps now to surrender your will to him in such a way that maybe you've never done before and say, God, whatever your will for my life is, that's what I want to do. That leads me to that number two there. Before you act or fail to act, ask yourself, what would I do if God lived in me? Then do that, because he does live in you. So when you go to do something and you realize you're doing it, you stop yourself and say, wait a minute, Lord, is this what you want me to do? And if he says yes, then do it knowing that he's going to do it. Or if you say, I don't want Christ, really? I wouldn't go there if I were you. I would receive Christ and his help. And the third thing, I want to ask you a question. What would Calvary look like if we all lived in the power of this promise? What would this church look like if we all realize that we're saved, we can't be lost. God's forgiven us. Before you say, oh, that means I can do anything I want? Paul said, no, because if you're saved, you'll want to do what God wants you to do. Should I sin the more that grace may the more abound? Paul said, may it never be. And in the Greek language, that's almost cussing the way he said it. He said, no way. Meganoite is the Greek word. No way. You can't do that because if you're saved, God has changed your life and you'll, want, you'll desire his will rather than your own. So a guy that says that doesn't know the Lord. Because if you know the Lord, you want to please him, the Bible tells us. Right? But what would it look like not to worry about whether you're going to heaven or hell? Because you know you're going to heaven. So you don't have to waste your energy and time worrying about that. You don't have to spend precious energy. Well, I hope this is good enough. Hey, God knew it wasn't good enough before you got started. But he picked you anyway. He can use a donkey. He can certainly use you. Sometimes in my case, I think that's what he's doing, using. I knew you'd get that after a minute. If you no longer had a concern of establishing your own righteousness, but you lived in the imputed righteousness of Christ, that he gave you his righteousness, that that he gave you his holiness. So you don't have to keep a bunch of rules to be holy. You are holy because he is holy and he lives in you. We run around telling people, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, you got to do that. I understand there are rules. But if you try to keep rules, you're going to mess up. And if you think you're right because you kept rules, <laughs> you better go back and read. God gave us a bunch of rules to show us we couldn't keep rules. So that we would trust his work in our life rather than our own. And here's what he does. He puts the rules in our heart so that our will is his will. That we begin to live out his will without having to know what the rules are because we are wanting to follow him and he'll never lead us astray. What would it be like to live with no fear? Either of this life or the one to come. 
I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't be afraid because I don't know what would happen. It's never happened to me. Witnessing, sort of, I don't think, can't remember. But if you come and stuck a gun to my head, how you kill a dead man? Because I died with Christ. Or you die. I'm afraid of dying. And you know what? I may come to my point of death and I may have fear because I'm just a man. I'm weak. But I don't have to fear dying because it's just the ticket to get on the train to go to heaven. That's it. I'm not going to die. I'm going to change addresses from 215 Tuxedo to whatever my address is in heaven. I don't know what it is. But that's, that's all that's going to happen. And to live life with no fear. What would it be like if our church no longer feared? Oh, well, if we go in that neighborhood, somebody might get hurt. Well, they might. So? Wait a minute. Jesus left him, put on a suit, lived among men that wanted to kill him from before he was born because they made his mom go to Bethlehem when she was way pregnant, when she shouldn't be traveling. And from almost conception, the Satan was trying to kill him as a child. Two years and younger, Herod says, kill them all. Very demonic thing to kill children. And in his life, they wanted to push him off a cliff. They wanted to stone him. But he waited till the fullness of time so he could go to a cross and die the way God had prescribed and there's God's time and God's place. And he lived his life with no fear. So what? Let's go for it. The Christ that did that has led the way. So are we supposed to sit back and go, well, that's too much, Lord. I know you came and you... You died for me, but, you know, talking to my neighbor, I might get embarrassed, and that's just a bit much to ask. You know? I'm just preaching at me and letting y'all listen in, because I do the same thing, and we don't need to be there. Free to give ourselves our love and our life away. We don't have to worry. Somebody's going to hurt us. Somebody is going to hurt you. Let me just go ahead and relieve you of that. Yeah, you're going to get hurt. If you give your life away, if you love people, you're going to get hurt. Again, so what? I mean, we're not Paul Simon. Y'all know who Paul Simon is. Never mind. Some of y'all do. I'm a rock. I'm an island. He's writing that because he got hurt in love. We get to love people and we get hurt. We go, okay, God still loves me. I don't care. I'm going to love you anyway. Because you can't stop God from loving me. Even if you don't love me, it doesn't matter. How freeing would that be if our church loved people and gave our life away because we're not afraid to love Free to labor as free men. Because God's a fair boss. We labor as free men. We were slaves to sin and he set us free to be his slave. But when we became his slave, we found out, but you're free. And we labor not under compulsion, but because of love. That God loved us that much. Some wag wrote this. Working for God doesn't pay much here, but man, the retirement benefits are out of this world. God's a fair boss. He'll give you a fair wage for what you do. He calls them crowns, but here's the deal. We get to heaven and he rewards us for what he did through us. We'll understand that so well. We're going to take that crown and go, wait a minute. I didn't do this. You did this. And we're going to cast them at his feet and say, you alone are worthy. Because you saved me. Because you used me. You allowed me to serve you. You alone are worthy. All I deserved was hell. 
And you gave us heaven and glory and adoption as sons and an inheritance. You are our reward. Oh, Lord, thank you. And in heaven, it'll take eternity for us to say thank you there.